Welcome to Zero Brightness, a podcast about horror video games. My name's Ali. I'm joined by my friend James. How's it going, James? It's going pretty good. Today, we're talking about a game that took 10 years to make. <laughs> so we're going to talk about it for 10 years. <laughs> it's our Xanadu. <laughs> Yes, in Xanadu, a pleasure palace did James Woodard <laughs> slash Kublicon decree. Yes. That's right. We're talking about Kentucky Route Zero. Everybody's already like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> We've already lost all of you. And that's great because now we jump to the ads. Uh, <laughs> as always, this episode is brought to you by you. You can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also go to zero brightness dot com and you can buy a fucking t-shirt that's pretty cool yes and as thanks we tell you what games (laughs) we're going to play next in advance isn't that great if you do decide to support us on that old patreon you get an extra episode every week this week i don't know we're talking about but last week you would have heard why we're talking about this game this week (laughs) you like that circular logic are you confused yeah that's right kentucky route zero is fucking confusing so get into it feel the vibe time is a flat circle oh my god is it ever (laughs) yeah so we're a horror video game podcast and we're covering kentucky route zero not really a horror game if you want to hear our justification, yeah, give us a dollar and listen to that bonus episode. <laughs> it's totally a horror game, though. Yeah, sort of. I'm not even going to talk about why, because I said in that bonus episode that I never would again. <laughs> I'm done being the sorry cop, okay? Yeah, well, goodbye to all our new listeners. <laughs> but now, we're going to talk about Kentucky Route Zero. Kentucky Route Zero. What is it, James? What a game. So, all right. So, I've had a long history with this game. I probably picked it up about 2014 or 2015 and played through the first three chapters. Was excited when the fourth chapter came out. And then there was a four to five year lull between episodes, and it was super painful. Last episode just dropped, and I'm loving it. And Ollie tried the game for the first time, and he seems to like it. So, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, I loved it. It's uh, it's a great game. It is definitely a once-in-a-decade game. Absolutely. Not just because it took them a decade to make, but because it's very, very good. And it's very unique. Mm. And so we're going to do this in two parts. Fair warning. The first one today is going to be spoiler-free, and we're going to talk about what makes this game so unique. Yeah, well, maybe spoiler light. We might talk about some characters that you don't meet at the beginning of the game or something, but not yeah. no, nothing that'll destroy your fun with the game. Yeah. And then next week, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. Not, not do an exact play-by-play of the plot, but we're going to dig in. There's tons of references in this game. Literary and film and music references and just a ton of Americana and folklore. Um, so we're going to get into the weeds in the next episode, but if you're kind of on the fence about this game, uh, maybe listen to this one. And if you think it sounds like it's for you, go play it. And then next week, come back and we'll, uh, have a little, uh, round table discussion about the plot. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah. So I think with this game, it's helpful to talk about what it is. Um, I think this is a game kind of like Outer Wilds where people just keep breathlessly shouting about it, but no one will actually <laughs> say what it is. That's yeah. actually frustrating to me because like, I'm the sort of person that'll just take the plunge on anything that seems like weird and artsy because like, I'm me. But like, I get that a lot of people aren't that way. Mm, and so yeah. sometimes I, I felt that way about Outer Wilds, whereas like it looks cool, but like, what the fuck is it? You yeah. know? And yeah. I actually felt like I maybe helped at least a couple people in our discord by breaking it down. Sure. Whereas like, yeah, it's a puzzle exploration game. It's like Metroid prime meets, uh, something like observation, you know? Yeah. Right. And I, I know at least a couple people are like, oh, that's really useful. So with Kentucky Route Zero, my quick explanation of it would be that it's a lot like the side-scrolling puzzle adventure games that we have covered on this show from the last few years, like, or at least talked about on the show, like Detention, mm-hmm. Oxen Free, Night in the Woods. Night in the Woods. Yeah. Yep. Night in the Woods is a big one. It's in that same kind of genre, except it's way more of a fluid multimedia experience. So the gameplay might change on a fly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's also very literary. So if you don't like reading, this game is probably not for you. Yeah. In a really extreme way, because so we said this and a lot of people have said this about Disco Elysium, a game that we covered for Zero Brightness Plus which is that there is a lot of reading mm-hmm. and that just means that there's a lot of text in the game, right? Yeah. But Kentucky route zero isn't like that. There's a lot of text in the game and it's written like a novel or yes. a play at times. And the game is structured like a novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get into this. Well, it's very prosaic. You know, it, it, yeah. it changes perspective a lot. It can be very confusing. They, they play with words a ton in this game. Uh, they push the envelope on what a text adventure can be. Yeah. And if you don't like regular text adventures, you're definitely not going to like this game. Yeah. So the game, like, pulls a lot from text adventure games, literally. So there's whole portions of the game that are just a text adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or a text adventure with a very light visual interface. Yeah. And yeah, I think the literary thing really can't be overstated. I mean, when I was playing this game early on, there were moments where I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then I realized that they were just using literary techniques. Sure. And they're using literary techniques in a very specific form of like avant-garde literature that I'll get into. Mm -hmm. So I get why people would be playing it and be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think the main criticism I saw of this game is that it's quote-unquote vague hipster bullshit. And (laughs) I fuck one, I fucking hate that. Yeah. And two, if if you use like phrases like that, this game's probably not for you. I don't mean that in like a Rick and Morty. You have to have a high enough intelligence to play this game. Uh, I mean, if if you don't like shit like that, this just probably isn't for you, and that's okay. Well, totally. And go play Dead Space, you fucking twerp. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, James. Bad James. Bad. Uh, no, I think that there are two like legit criticisms of this game, right? Mm-hmm. And 
Number one is it has a slow start. It has a real slow start. Like, I didn't really get into this game until the second chapter. Or okay. like, maybe the, the end of the first chapter, really? I was like, all right, now yeah. we're fucking. <laughs> but like, I, so I get that. The other thing too is, once again, if you go into it not expecting it to be paced and structured like a novel, mm. the beginning seems weird. But then once you know that, I tried this. I went back and played a little bit of the first chapter and yeah. I was like, oh yeah, it's actually really good. <laughs> but it's like a novel where it's not necessarily going to just hit you in the face with like all the stuff, right? Yeah. That's what video games do a lot of the time. Yeah. Though, right? Yeah. I think the other criticism that kind of gets at what you're saying is that this game might just not be to your taste if you don't think video games can really handle this sort of art or like these sorts of themes which is like a legit belief like maybe you are just like i would rather just like read this i don't know why yeah i'm playing it yeah like i don't feel that way at all and i know you don't but like i'm just saying that like you need to be ready for that experience before you play this game well here's the thing this game has a very intentional pace the characters walk slow things reveal themselves slow and if 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 you're in a mood where you want to like rush through something like don't play this if you if you don't feel like reading a bunch of stuff that night maybe play something else for the night but if you want to just like snuggle in and just like absorb fucking art that's when you want to play this game take your time make put on a pot of coffee fucking vibe out and play this game totally but it's you kind of have to treat it like a novel like it really demands the same mm. things of you if you were reading as if you were reading a really dense novel or like an art film yeah like fucking this is the cremaster cycle of fucking video games you know <laughs> well i'm not a huge <laughs> fan of that guy so i don't know if i can go with that but i get what you're saying it was the first thing saying. that came to mind for sure yeah I just think like for me and I, and I know for you, I get that like if you have experienced a certain like subset of art and culture, things like this just make sense. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I get it. Once you get it, you get it. Yeah. But I guess like I, I'm trying to sort of think about how to reach out to people who maybe like haven't had that experience or aren't like the hugest fans of that, you know, because mm. like I like a lot of really overly dense bullshit in totally. terms of writing. Yeah. Right. So like, when I get to a video game that does something like that, I'm like, oh, hell yeah, right? But I get that not everybody is like loves Thomas Pynchon, yeah. right? Like not everybody has subjected themselves to Gravity's Rainbow like more than twice. <laughs> well, so I have a background in visual art. You know, I have a degree in studio art. I love going to art galleries and taking my time, you know, standing in front of a piece of art and, you know, letting the aesthetic wash over you, you know? I'm not the guy that runs through the gallery. You know what I mean? I vibe yeah. with a piece and then study it. Um, this game tickles me like that. I think even if you were interested in the visual arts or modern multimedia art, uh, this game might be for you. Um, you know, oh, totally. We'll get into it when we talk about the background a little bit. But, you know, the developers have done like gallery shows around pieces of this game have even put art gallery shows in the game in weird ways 
and uh, they love playing with that idea of gallery you know yeah presentation one of the really amazing things about this game is that it does incorporate other forms of art it incorporates practices from other forms of art in a really cool and meaningful way yeah and i think once again for people like us it's exciting because we talk a lot about video games being an artistic Mm cul-de-sac and video games being overly self-referential and not being in conversation with other works of art or other art forms um i think that's both true and a really terrible thing so Mm. when you see games that are in conversation with those other art forms it's exciting even in something like clock tower right where it's like oh they they like argento that's cool Mm. but in this game it's like so heavy and it's so intense that it's like oh wow this is actually fucking great yeah like oh these dudes love philosophy and architecture and the visual arts and you know stage plays you know so there's a lot to unpack here which i love like this game was very immersive for me uh, I loved stewing on it after I would take a break, you know, stop playing and go to work. I would stew on the themes while I was at work. Like, what does it mean? Uh, this game leaves you with a bunch of questions and it washes over you like that in a really uh, beautiful way, I think. Yeah, for sure. All right. Tell me a little bit about this background. <laughs> well, it's it was developed by a small company called Cardboard Computer. Uh, three gentlemen. Uh Ben Babbitt, the composer, uh, Jake Elliott, and Tomas Kaminsky, I think it's how it's pronounced. I think they were based in Chicago uh, during most of the development, even though I think they finished the game in Paris because a couple of these guys were teaching game development classes. So huh. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, it was kickstarted in 2011. Uh, chapter 1 came out in 2013. And, uh, you know, chapter two came out quickly after that. And then the chapters started getting more and more spread out. Uh, in between chapters, they released sort of bonus content um, that you would download as EXEs off their website. And uh, some of it was ARG based. Uh, and they did a bunch of, like I said earlier, gallery shows and things to show off some stuff from the game. Uh, and then, yeah. Uh, Kentucky Route Zero TV edition just dropped, and that's the one available for consoles. It's got all that bonus stuff built in, so all five chapters with five bonus chapters, and it's out on, like, everything now. I think you played yeah. it on Switch? Yeah, I played it on Switch. It was great. I've got the PC version. Uh, plays great. Well, here's one thing, too. I do want to say this about the TV edition, is that it's really fucking cool, and if you feel like maybe you waited too long or like missed out on the hype or something don't feel that way i actually think i think that having it all in one place as one game is brilliant Mm. to the point where it's kind of hard for me to imagine not playing it that way yeah you know because like okay so just example of structure of the game there's five chapters and in between chapters there are interludes yeah so there's one like between each of the chapters and one after the game. Yeah. And when you first start playing the game, like the first one you play, you might be thinking like, oh, like how important are these to the plot? But if you actually play through those interludes entirely and really fully explore them, 
you realize that it's like they're hugely important to the plot mm-hmm. to the point where I don't actually know how you would get what was going on if you hadn't played through the interludes. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? sure. So I definitely think that as cool as it is that they put this game out in that way and they did all this side content and stuff, having it all together in one place, playing through it like one big continuous story, just like reading it like a big book compilation, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Uh, is really really brilliant and I kind of feel like it's the best way to experience this game if you're not super into all the like ARG stuff I guess if you were it would have yeah. been fun at the time but I'm not so to me it was like wow this is actually amazing well one, one thing I really like is that these developers really love fucking with phone numbers uh, they, they really like mess with bridging the real world with this game Yeah, and totally. so they'll hide phone numbers in the game or in their marketing materials and things. And you can call these phone numbers and basically play a little mini phone game with usually like weird Lynchian results. Yeah, totally. And we're even talking about in the discord, how it kind of warps your view of reality Yeah, and how you can start to start to feel like things that are having the real world are straight out of Kentucky route zero. Well, it's also a big theme in the game. Like I grew up in Cincinnati, which is about 15 minutes from Kentucky. So you spend a lot of time in Kentucky and there's references to like real places that I've actually been Mm -hmm. in Kentucky. And it's like, Oh yeah. So it's cool. It's very cool. About cardboard computer. Ben Babbitt is the composer. He's a really sick musician. Um, He's worked with bands like angel Olsen and how to dress well. Uh, He's also in a band called pillars and tongues. He does cool things because not only does he do like the ambient musical score of the game, but there are also characters that make music in the game. So he kind of plays like dress up with these characters. And like there's a character called Junebug, which is like a uh, synth pop singer. So he did a couple songs as Junebug, you know, he even called it like a uh, quote unquote musical drag because Junebug's a woman. So he got to, you know, play these songs in this way. And then there's a lot of like folk music in the game too. I think it's uh, the band's called the Bedside Ramblers or something like that. Uh, and so he put puts on this whole folk hat and makes like gorgeous folk music too. And then you know the the regular score of this game is just beautiful. It's like kind of like Tim Hecker ish or something like that. It's really great stuff. Yeah, it's got really good musical cues. The ambient stuff is just very good and it sets the scene very well. And then yeah, the little musical performances are really cool. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are just sort of happening and you can either walk away from them or just stand there and listen to them, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Uh, Yeah, there's like a recurring theme of at certain points, like in the foreground as silhouettes, you'll just see like a bluegrass band playing. And it's really, really cool because it's all just like old bluegrass standards Mm. and just arranged and performed by uh, different people. Uh, It's very cool. Yeah, it's all just reverbed out and all sad sounding and stuff. It, they really recontextualize those old standards. Yeah, and like if you know anything about bluegrass, even just a bit, it's cool. Like the the song choices are are really cool and really fitting. Yeah. So uh, Jake Elliott uh, is one of the developers. He's been making quote unquote nonviolent, slow paced narrative games since around 2010. Uh, before Kentucky Route Zero, he made a short game called A House in California that won some awards and got some press attention. Um, he's also a musician and a modular synth nerd. Uh, and he like builds his own circuits and stuff like that too, which is really cool. Seems like 
these dudes are like dudes we would hang out with in real life. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and then the third guy, uh, Tomas Kaminsky. Uh, he's, I, I think he's kind of the programming muscle of the group. Uh, like I went to his GitHub page and stuff <laughs> and he, uh, <laughs> nice. currently teaches and has taught, uh, game art courses. He's got a real cool, uh, GDC talk about creating environments like a theatrical show on YouTube. Uh, pretty dense and interesting stuff. Uh, I like it a lot. Yeah. And that's a big thing that recurs in the game. Totally. Presenting it like a stage play. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, the developers uh, did a lot of art gallery exhibitions tied to the game um, and just did like reality bending stuff. Um, there's one part of the game that's uh, essentially just a phone, a phone call. And depending on what you do in the game, it might be a different looking phone. Uh, so what they did is they had an art gallery show with all these phones and they, they sold them on eBay it was like a haunted phone can only dial one phone number and uh yeah they sold them all on ebay uh pretty interesting (laughs) nice they've had tons of art exhibits in like london chicago nyc seattle la uh pretty insane shit for just a a a small video game developer they were really tied into the visual arts community yeah for sure which once again it's cool video games are art and they should be in conversation with other art forms i mean I think in this game it's cool because the theme of galleries and visual art is strong like throughout the game i think this game might be the best argument for video games as art really i mean in the traditional sense yeah you know art is always self-referential and historically referential and this game's just constantly doing that it's it's almost like the more you know, the more you can derive from this game. Yeah, which is totally. really cool. It's just like a spider web. Well, and we've kind of talked about it that I don't think video games need to be argued for as art because they just are art. But mm. I do think that video games are sort of bad at acting like pieces of art. Yeah, totally. And that's one of the things that they're worst at is being in conversation and with other art. I, I mean, I mm-hmm. keep saying that. I should explain what I mean. I guess what I mean is that. When you are an artist, you make art, you have influences, you have things you like, you have things that are inspirational to you. So you want to like shout them out and also incorporate them into what you're making. And you kind of want to like reach out uh, to those other art forms and you want to be like talking literally and figuratively with them. Sure. And video games just get so, so, so self-referential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even just in the sense of like the art and design elements of it, right? Like if you're a band, if you need an album cover, you might reach out to an artist you like, right? And just right, right there, that's like a gesture. As opposed to like video games, it's always like someone in-house just like designing something that's going to go on like a plastic case, even though we don't even use fucking plastic cases anymore. Sure. A lot of these ga- out like game covers are still just like hideous. And it's just like, oh yeah, maybe like mm. talk to a designer or something. <laughs> Well, okay, so, I mean, this I think just how this game is a great argument for games as art, it's also a great argument for why small teams make better games. Uh, I think there's definitely, like, some auteur video game development going on here. Um, I don't ever think a game like this can be made by a team of 60 people or 200 people. Sure. Um, this is not designed by committee, for sure. You know, this is a singular vision by a couple people. 
and it really shows yeah totally um all right so um you know we talked a bit about gameplay already but really depending on how you play this game it can change quite a bit uh originally it was a point and click adventure game right you clicked and then the character walks to where you clicked and then uh, points of interest will get like a little uh, square UI to where you can either interact or talk with somebody. Um, kind of like an old, you know, Maniac Mansion style LucasArts game, but simplified. Um, TV Edition added controller controls, where with the left stick you kind of you can like directly control your character, which you couldn't do previously. And then uh, the D-pad. You, or the right stake, you can kind of choose points of interest. It's kind of cool because you can be really far away from a point of interest, but it will already pop up. And if you choose it, your character will, will immediately like walk to it and interact with it. Yeah, well, it's super good. It was basically what I described as how I would want controller support for Disco Elysium when we talked about it. Mm, yeah, because uh, yeah, it's like you can move your character around directly, but also, yeah, you flick through points of interest with the right stick. And so sometimes you need to explore around and find the points of interest, but sometimes they're just on screen, so you don't even have to move your character around. Yeah. Like, if you're in a really small, cramped scene, you're really just flicking through and selecting the things you're interested in and then, like, making dialogue choices. Yeah. Uh, it's cool because it also makes it feel a little more visceral, gives you a little more control over the character, and once again, like, brings it in line with something like detention or night mm. in the woods which is a style of game and control that i really really enjoy personally i kind of think the point and click is a little better way to experience the game but i mean you know your mileage may vary it's a personal preference it sounds like you like the controller more which is totally cool yeah yeah and like i mentioned earlier it plays really well on switch mm. uh i really had a good time playing it it's like the world's craziest game boy advance game love it <laughs> Um, even though it's a callback to text adventures and visual, you know, graphic adventures, you can't lead yourself to a dead game or get stuck or miss important items or anything like that. Uh, it's very quote unquote easy in terms of games like that. And it really just wants to tell you a story. I think the most, you know, difficult things are just like getting vague directions and going to the right place you know things like that it's not a difficult game at all it's more about the journey for sure and i I actually really like the way they paced the game so every chapter is slightly different and sometimes it's very different in the way you play it Mm. but it's generally that there are sections of it where your character is moving around and talking to people and moving through scenes in a pretty linear way like you can make different dialogue choices but as Mm -hmm. far as what you actually do it's pretty linear and then it'll break it up with other sections that are totally open, but will have a different gameplay style. Yeah. So yeah. the first chapter is actually the best illustration of it. And it's also kind of why the first chapter feels really slow mm. is because like it opens up, you're walking around with your dude, having conversations with people, you get directions to a place and then you have to drive there. But yeah, sort of the driving is literally just a map. And you're a wheel on the map and you're just driving your little icon around while yeah. car noises happen. Yeah. And then like you can you can go anywhere you want. Certain places you can stop and get out and like play a little scene. Yeah. Other places you literally just get like a text option and you have a little text adventure thing. Yeah. That happens. Like you'll stop at a gas station 
and then you'll play the gas station part, but you'll never see it. It's just a text adventure on top of the map. But then other right. things, like you'll stop at, like, two guys are pushing an airplane down the highway. So you'll stop and look at them and maybe have a small conversation and then leave. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So it's it's cool because you go back and forth and every chapter is different, but they're all kind of structured like that where there's a set, except for the last one, where there's parts of it that are really linear and there are parts of it that are more open. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's really cool. I like it, but yeah, it's it's definitely it kind of keeps you on your toes. Like there's moments where you just have to do something you haven't done before. Um, I think that what is to me most interesting but also can be most confusing about the game is that even in some of the linear sections the way that it approaches storytelling is really non-linear yes and it can be really strange and confusing if you're not ready for it so like i mentioned earlier it uses a lot of literary tactics and styles and i think the biggest one that it uses is shifting perspective so like your perspective can suddenly shift, not just like, oh, I'm controlling a different character now, which can be confusing and the game does, but that's also kind of a classic video game thing. Mm-hmm. It'll also just change like who is looking at the game, right? Yeah. yeah. So like in this game, just like in most video games, you get used to there just being this like omniscient view. You <laughs> yeah. are the person watching the game, but right. then this game likes to fuck with you by changing that totally yeah it's really cool so like there'll be moments where it'll switch to like multiple times where it switches to a security camera Mm -hmm. and then it's two characters who you haven't even seen or maybe never see yeah having a conversation about the security camera footage you're watching and then you're watching you're controlling the character Mm -hmm. in the security camera but you're actually reading dialogue of the two people watching the footage yes like (laughs) It's like something in a novel or something. It's really cool and gorgeous and strange. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going with that, um, you know, text and conversations, you know, while, while the game is generally linear, text and conversations can branch and end up resolving in a lot of different ways. Um, it kind of makes me want to replay scenes just to see what people will say. Uh, they take this really far in later chapters Uh, especially on the fourth chapter, um, you can actually choose whether to go with certain characters or stay with others. Um, Really interesting. Like, I actually want to go back and play through chapter four again just because there's so many branching paths. Oh, yeah. Well, so chapter four is interesting because it feels like there's two entirely different scenarios you can play Mm -hmm. based on your choices. And that one is kind of a mix of the linear and nonlinear playstyles because you are just playing through scenes that are relatively linear and making dialogue choices, but it's based around a voyage down a river, and at each stop you get to choose one of two scenarios. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, um, not only does the 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 voice change, but the playable character changes frequently, and sometimes it'll just happen while you're playing. Uh, there's a certain scene where you're uh, you're just walking around a parking lot, and just all of a sudden you'll switch to a different character, and it makes kind of no sense. But it, I don't know, it's just so different. It keeps you on your toes. Yeah, and it does that multiple times in the game. Yeah. Once again, it's cool. It's like a book. <laughs> yeah. But you, what I think there is something that can be jarring about that because in a book, 
it's just words. Like, you're already piecing together the words and piecing together what the visual of this writing is in your head, right? And, like, working mm-hmm. out what the perspective is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In video games, it's more concrete. There already is a representation and a visual, so... Sometimes your brain can kind of start doing backflips to try and figure out yeah. what's going on in these scenes. Mm-hmm. It, I think, like, for me, I just kept relating it back to books and writing to help me yeah. understand it, yeah. you know? It's cool, though. Like, it's very, very cool. Yeah. So you touched a bit on the driving sections. Their visual style is completely different than the rest of the game. The rest of the game has this sort of dramatically lit, low-poly, kind of gorgeous far off third person look but the driving sections are like shown in a real abstract vector graphics sort of way yeah so it's all just black and white no shading low poly line drawings essentially and it's super dark um it definitely has like the vibe of like david lynch's old website that was like super (laughs) interactive yeah totally (laughs) you know and it's like it's got that visual style uh yeah it's it's weird. Uh, I like the idea of these parts. I think there's maybe a bit too much of it in the first chapter. Oh, you think again. so? Yeah, it just like it feels really slow before you figure out like how it works. Yeah, I feel like um, it kind of throws you into the deep end of the pool uh, and doesn't really explain how progression works. But I don't. I, I felt like that was just kind of cool and open ended. I didn't really think of that as a negative. Oh, yeah. I mean, once I... F- towards the end of the first chapter, when I was really into it, I was just driving around and looking at everything. Yeah, yeah. And it was really fun. Well, that goes to my next point, game progression. Um, sometimes it can feel really, like, nonsensical. Like, the scene will just cut, and you go to the next scene, and you're in a completely different place. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. And once again, it's it's pulling from their influences a lot, you know? Yeah. I, I If I had to have one big takeaway from Kentucky route zero. It's that Kentucky route zero is like a good book. Totally. Uh, Specifically like a good magical realism novel. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, And I think you have to be ready for that and you have to understand what that entails. Like, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying you have to know everything about the magical realism genre or have read any of the authors that I am totally about to snow you under with. (laughs) But I am saying that if you at least catch the vibe, it helps to understand what is going on Mm. with this game. Okay. I'm going to talk about magical realism now. (laughs) Time for your dissertation. Yeah. Okay. So what is magical realism? Um, Magical realism is a sort of subgenre of multiple art forms uh, that's been around for a very long time. It kind of sprang up in the 50s in writing, Mm. uh, or at least was sort of codified in writing and then germinated out into a bunch of different art forms. So, you know, there's films and TV shows and now there's video games and everything. Um, We talked a little bit about this in the last Zero Brightness Plus episode, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper with it. Uh, magical realism is a genre of fiction that mostly takes really real-world situations and stories and juxtaposes them with the idea that there are supernatural forces that exist. Mm. So 
a lot of these novels, for example, will be set in countries that have a strong traditional culture. They'll be set in like rural villages, for example, and people's lives will be the focal point of it and people's economic realities will be the focal point of it. But also magic exists. Right. Um, Originally, I guess who I would consider to be the sort of creators of or like the big three of magical realism are Jorge Luis Borges, Isabel Allende, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm, Yes. So uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is probably the most famous of these three authors amongst like general, you know, pop culture. Yeah. Uh, and he has a novel called 100 Years of Solitude that is freakishly, freakishly influential on this game. Like, yeah. these fuckers loved 100 Years of Solitude, bro. <laughs> like, okay, no spoilers, but 100 Years of Solitude is about a village surrounded by water, cut off from the rest of the world, dealing with the uh, quickly encroaching future. Sound fucking familiar? Like, <laughs> bro. Uh Yes, Marquez is awesome. Uh, all these authors are amazing. Uh, Isabel Allende has a great book called The House of the Spirits. That's kind of like her classic. Um, mm. It's kind of all about like people with like psychic powers dealing with the realities of like their fucked up families. It's great. Mm. Um, and you know, I think my favorite of these classic authors is Jorge Luis Borges. Um, Borges is uh, incredible. Uh, a lot of his, uh, he was writing, um, a lot in like the forties and fifties, uh, I believe. And he has like, God, he has so many just great pieces of writing, but he has just like a collected short works book. That's just like all his short stories that you can buy anywhere for really cheap. And it is something that you should not only read, but you should fucking own. Like everybody should. It's <laughs> absolutely incredible. Like if that, I don't know if I had to pick like one piece of writing to survive from humanity, I'd probably pick that. Wow. Uh, it's like fucking insane how good it is. Um, but one thing that he was really, really influential with was um, playing with the form of a novel or like a a short story Mm. so like a lot of his works um they just like have a really weird form and structure they'll have like strange footnotes they don't progress in a linear way or like they're as non-linear as a traditional short form piece of writing can be Mm. you know and also once again they sort of juxtapose these sort of like traditional situations with like the existence of magic or supernatural forces. He feels like a huge influence on this game just because of the way that they play with structure and the way that it kind of feels like you're just diving into the footnotes of this game while you're playing the game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, Yeah. Borges is the man. Um, you know, going forward from there, like some more modern examples, we talked a little bit about in film, Guillermo del Toro is like hugely influential magical realist. Mm. Um, I think Pan's Labyrinth and the Devil's Backbone are kind of like peak magical realism for him. Totally. Um, similar themes. Once again, a lot of it is about people in, you know, traditional cultures or, you know, people in circumstances they can't control 
sort of facing the fact that not only can they not control their own circumstances, but also that like these crazy supernatural forces exist. Some other, so uh, other modern people, obviously you've got Haruki Murakami, the Japanese novelist is like hugely famous and uh, influential magical realist. A lot of his works follow people who are just very normal and blase getting thrown into really insane circumstances. Mm. Like kind of just these like normal dudes who suddenly are like also existing in a crazy Lynchian other world. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's also the novel and the film adaptation, Big Fish, uh, which is kind of, yeah, that's a great slice of magical realism in the sense that it's basically someone following the supposedly true life story of I think it's their their grandfather or their dad and then trying to figure out what's real and what's not it's really mm. really a cool story um, earlier in another Zero Brightness Plus episode I recommended Kelly Link uh, she kind of does something similar Nice. and you know okay so the reason that I'm talking about all this stuff right the reason I'm talking about magical realism is because magical realism is great number one uh, <laughs> um, oh also maybe the best magical re- modern magical realism novel is geek love hmm. uh, which is a really cool novel it's about like a family of circus performers and I don't know how much else I can say beyond that. It's a very strange (laughs) and very cool novel. It's not really about like the circus. It's more about their, their family and their practices and their culture as like traveling performers. And then how it breaks down when their family relationships start to break down. Mm. Very cool. Um, Anyway, back on topic, magical (laughs) realism. The, The reason that magical realism is really important to this game is that magical realism was a very specific form of, avant-garde writing that Mm. sought to subvert the conventions of like traditional fiction or traditional literature, not just by bridging the gap between what is real and what isn't or bridging the gap between realism and fantasy, which is basically the whole point of it. Mm -hmm. But also because it really radically changed the form of a novel and what you could do with a novel, like, even going back and reading the seminal stuff like Borges, you just get this sense of like, wow, you could do anything with a piece of writing, right? Nice. And I feel like that's so strong in this game. I mean, this game is in the same wheelhouse topically because it's about poor people in poor rural communities trying to square themselves with A, the economic realities of capitalism and B, the encroaching future, which yeah. is clearly going to be horrible. Yeah. Because um, the future, we live in it and it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing is that it feels like a real outgrowth of that magical realism movement in the same way that some certain modern authors do in the sense that it has a really interesting form and style that's super crazy and subversive, uh, but it's still really approachable and it's still really enjoyable to experience. It's just not always easy to grasp. So just to mention a couple more authors, sorry. Go for it. Uh, Yeah. So just a couple more authors and works that spring to mind. I mentioned earlier Thomas Pynchon. I think Thomas Pynchon is a great example of someone who's almost existing alongside magical realism without explicitly like entering into it. Uh, His works are really concerned with like the sort of mystical underpinnings of the world 
um, even though the world tries to present itself as this like very dry, buttoned-up bureaucratic thing. There's like all these strange uh, mystical things happening behind the curtain. It's very Kentucky Route Zero. Mm. Um, definitely go read The Crying of Lot 49 if you haven't, if you want a little, little taste of that. <laughs> uh, and the other author is uh, Roberto Bolaño, who I've mentioned before. He wrote a novel called The Savage Detectives, and he wrote the mammoth 2666 novel slash series of novels and his stuff is very hard-hitting and dark and death-obsessed and realist but at the same time there's always this suggestion that there's something strange and supernatural happening once again like right under the veil it's very Mm. true detective it's very cool yeah wow well there you go gamers we have our homework cut out for us (laughs) read some fucking books holy shit man I really think that even just getting the feel, like reading uh, Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami and Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon, which are the two shortest novels of everything I just listed, like you get a feel for how people can draw these contrasts between realism and really crazy, unknowable, supernatural fantasy, Mm. you know, and how playing with structure fits into that as well, you know? Nice. Would the Steam reviews call it vague hipster bullshit? Oh yeah, the Steam reviews of everything I just uh, <laughs> I just listed would call it uh, vague hipster bullshit. I mean, I also somehow got this far without mentioning like the master of the like crazy uh, novel that happens all in the footnotes, which is uh, Nabokov. Mm. Um, his novel Pale Fire is a classic that I would consider to be in the same canon. He's basically just like a Borges worshiper and. Yeah, I mean, you just get the sense that you can play with structure. You can change things. You know, nice. it's awesome. I Uncle Ollie's book club, man, He's <laughs> fucking crushing it. I've read a lot of fucking books. Okay, educate the world, dude. I love it. <laughs> I'm trying, dude. Trying to educate me. <laughs> trying to educate some people. Well, no, like that's okay. So, like, this game is great, right? Like, yeah. And part of the reason it's great is that it feels like a piece of art. It's in yes. conversation with other things. But it's also great because the references it makes leads you down these great rabbit holes. Like that's how it's supposed to work. Like yes. I think both of us can remember being kids and so like and Nirvana, right? Like yeah. Nirvana was just like a major label rock band, but they were like, dude, listen to the Melvins. You go listen to the Melvins and yeah. suddenly you're like, fuck, well now I have to listen to all this other shit too. Like I, I gotta listen to like, you know, like half Japanese and I got to listen to like all this fucking weird music. And suddenly you have an education. (laughs) Kentucky route zero is the Nirvana of video. games. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Thank you for listening to zero brightness. If you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreoncom slash zero brightness. You can also find and interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and discord. All the relevant links are at zero brightness.com. We'll see you out there. Side note, did you try the multiplayer option in the pause menu? <laughs> what the fuck? No, I didn't. What is that? I didn't know it's a thing. It says multiplayer. Okay, and you click on it, and it gives you instructions <laughs> on how to play this game in multiplayer. It says, when you get to a point where you want another player to play the game, pass the controller to them and let them press start. <laughs> That's so fucking yeah, funny, dude. it's funny. Because, uh, well, if that if that's the case, then uh, Monica and I have coded a multiplayer mode into Sinking City. <laughs> <laughs> multiplayer for everyone. 
Yeah, every game has multiplayer. Yeah. So, okay, you know, we've, we've gone over some of the themes, you know, with magical realism and stuff. And, you know, how this game is, like, married with the visual arts, literature, and music. But I do want to talk a little bit more about the music because the music seems to be so deeply ingrained with the themes of this game. Uh, so much so that many of our characters are musicians themselves. Yeah. Um, I mentioned Junebug, and essentially right smack in the middle of this game is like a seven-minute song where Junebug performs, and you just sit back and watch as you know one of the characters performs a song. And this isn't the only time that happens in the game. You know, no. you you mentioned earlier that there's like a a diegetic like folk band in some scenes. Uh, you might be yeah. running through the forest and they're playing in the woods, and you might get closer to them, and the music becomes clear. You meet another character la- later that's a lap steel player, and you meet another character that plays the theremin, uh, named Clara, of course. <laughs> clear, yeah, clear reference to Clara Rockmore. Yeah, very famous theremin player who actually inspired me to learn the theremin. And yes, I actually know the classical method of how to play the theremin. It is so hard to play the theremin. Not if you play the cello. Oh, really? It's just one of the most difficult instruments I've tried to play. I built the theremin once. I haven't had a real theremin in years, but I taught myself the classical method based off of watching Clara Rockmore performances. Mm. And also knowing how to play cello. And then I actually played it in a band. My first band, there's a fuck ton of theremin. Oh, sick. Because I taught myself how to play it. And I was like, well, shit. I mean, I got to do something with this. Well, side note, Clara Rockmore did this trick where she put a really big 15-inch speaker right by her head so she could hear the notes before the audience did. And that's how she kept that damn thing in tune. And so, yeah, she she would just like sneak in those notes so she could hear if they were in tune or not before the audience did. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also so like the method that she came up with it is positions just like on a fretless string instrument, Mm. like a violin, viola, cello. Yeah. So it's basically like you're just playing for me. It was just like playing cello, but in reverse and without a fretboard. (laughs) Uh, The other thing, too, is that like it's it's actually simpler than it seems because although it's just like your hand is floating in space, there's only one axis per part that matters, mm, you know? Yeah. So Volume like, and pitch. Yeah, exactly. And you're using different hands to do it. So once you work out the coordination, it's like, Oh, if you know how to play, I mean, the first trick of course is already know how to play a cello. Yeah. And then this, <laughs> the second <laughs> trick is just practice a bunch yeah, I had a really nice one that I basically got given to me, and then I sold it because I was very, very broke. And mm. if I think about it too much, I get very sad. And <laughs> now I'm thinking, I should build a Theramin. <laughs> yeah, dude, get one of those Paya kits. I made a yeah. Theramax, and it was not too hard. The thing that sucks, though, is that you need... The reason that the Moog ones are just so easy to buy, even though they're very expensive, is because you do actually need a really good instrument. Like, Mm. it has to be calibrated well. It has to have good range. It has to have good parts. Otherwise, you actually can't play it. That's why a lot of people think the theremin's impossible to play. Because they buy a cheap kit, and then they're like, my $15 kit theremin plays like (laughs) shit. And it's like, yes, your $15 guitar also plays like shit, buddy. Well, there are a lot of trim pots inside those things. Yeah, the Pia kit's like 200 bucks. 
Oh yeah, a lot of knobs on that bad boy. Nice. But anyways, um, anyways. <laughs> also, like watching people play theremin is really weird because you have to be yeah. very still while playing it, and you're basically yeah. doing hand gestures. So it's it's very strange and theatrical. And you know, yeah. you're playing it on a podium, and you touch it to kill the sound. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just really weird to watch somebody play a theremin. Oh yeah. 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 It's crazy. I mean, it's also weird to watch somebody play cello. It's kind of obscene. Yeah, but then imagine if the cello was invisible. No. Yeah. <laughs> Even more obscene. <laughs> <laughs> I have an electric cello that's kind of invisible. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. I love to play my invisible cello sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, you can tell that two-thirds of this dev team are musicians. Uh, they love music. They love sound. It's, it's always referencing... Uh, musicians you know the little kid takes field recordings so that Junebug and Johnny can you know remix them into songs uh, yeah there's there's a lot of musicianship going on here um, Johnny which is Junebug's uh, boyfriend or partner he's always talking about the tones in rooms it's like oh this room has a nice tone to it yeah you know <laughs> I love that kind of stuff classic musician shit yeah, yeah that character is such a classic musician monica used to always <laughs> get so pissed at me for like doing impulse response tests in new rooms like you clap real hard. Where, you, where you clap <laughs> twice like when you walk into a new room yeah. she would just be like fucking stop <laughs> impulse response test dude come on i gotta do the irt <laughs> how am i gonna know how many seconds of reverb this room has if i don't pull out your zoom record your kitty cat <laughs> Yeah, the most relatable thing about that character is how they're just always trying to turn everything into a studio. Like, yeah. you have so many dialogue options in so many different rooms of like, oh, I could set up a studio here. It's like, <laughs> you fucking relatable piece of shit. <laughs> These dudes yeah. get it. Yeah, well, this, yeah, this game, the music aspect of it is really great. Even if you're not a musician, you just love music. There's mm-hmm. just so much music and, and music talk. It's great. Yeah. All right. Well, switching gears to music, because I think we talked about it quite a bit. You know, I do want to talk more about, like, the visuals in this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one thing to say that a game looks theatrical, but it's hard to kind of explain why. Uh, but, you know, in the developer's GDC talk, he talks about lighting these scenes. And it's interesting to hear him talk because he talks about them in a very physical way, you know, uh, sure. spotlighting and background lighting. He, he almost talks like a photographer. You know what I mean? And there's a bonus episode where you're watching a play and you can actually look around at the lighting rig and read descriptions of the lighting rig. Yeah. <laughs> Very theatrical stage design. It almost looks like dioramas. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever done any real lighting for photo, video, yeah. stage, I mean, it's cool because you'll recognize immediately what they're doing. And it gives the game a really unique look. And even if you're not familiar with this sort of thing, there is an interlude that's just a stage play uh, that's maybe my favorite part of the game actually and i actually didn't like notice right away what they were doing the lighting until i played that interlude and then i the lighting changes yes as the play goes on yeah and i was like oh fuck that's cool and then yeah. after that i was like oh wow all this stuff is practically 
in air quotes lit. Yeah. Like it's lit like they're using real lights on a stage or on a sound stage. And yeah. it totally changes the look of the game. Yeah. Um so, you know, perspectives change a lot in this game. Um when you're watching the play, that's in first person. There's another scene where you're behind the character and they rotate in a room in a circle. Uh, a lot of them look like classic PC adventure games where it's more of a side scroller and you click left and right. Uh, other scenes break that up where you walk into the background. Things in the extreme foreground turn black silhouette as more is revealed in the background as you walk away from the camera. Sure. Um, some of it is in a more like 45 degree bird's eye kind of look. Um, they're constantly playing with these things. Uh, generally, the camera is static, but then you'll have a scene where like, you're walking around a boat and the camera will wrap around the boat in 3D. Another thing about the visuals is that um, since this game is so text-heavy, that text and typography are played with a lot. And it's kind of really masterfully done, but in a minimal way. Uh, a lot of the menus are unconventional. The fonts they use are just like gorgeous. Um, the visual design is just stark and they play with the text a lot like some of the dialogue text can be warped or staticky or glitchy yeah and sometimes you know like I think in just one scene the text box will be cut in half and you jump between the left side and right side and you look at the different characters perspectives yeah it's super cool I actually love this element of the game once again it's a callback to magical realism novels that play with the structure and style of a piece of writing this game does the same thing with like the ui and the way the text is presented it's also reminiscent of the novel house of leaves mm. by mark danieluski another recommendation uh, that is all about that type of thing like playing with the presentation and visual style of a novel and trying to basically meld graphic design and the novel it's super cool i think if you play like a really long video game where that stuff doesn't change you don't notice but then after you play this game you're like shit why doesn't that change more yeah (laughs) that's fucking cool like it's really dynamic i think all the stuff we talk about in this game it's easy to just say oh it's great oh it's great oh it's great but like it's really dynamic and i think that's why like this game works so well as a game and Mm -hmm. not as a piece of writing or not as a stage play is like it makes it dynamic and it makes it interactive and it keeps finding different ways even if it's through small cues to like communicate with the player Mm -hmm. and to make them interact with the game you know what i mean and it's just constantly subverting your expectations like yeah like oh shit they cut the text box in half (laughs) yeah well and also like stuff like that really helps differentiate this game so through no fault of its own this game has ended up being like super influential and so Mm -hmm. playing this game now i think the one thing you do get the sense of is that it probably felt even more unique when it first came out Mm. but like even playing it now it's like the visual style is kind of copped by a lot of similar games and like a lot of things about it are familiar through other indie games but those little subtle touches and the the care and attention the detail that's put into those little touches really sets this game apart you know yeah. so even like okay i love oxen free mm-hmm. 
I love that game. I'm going to make you play it at some point. I know you're like, <laughs> whatever, but like, fuck you. That game is like one of the best games I've played of the last <laughs> 10 years for sure. But I can totally see after playing this game how like this game may have somewhat poisoned you against that game because like <laughs> it has a similar play style and visual style, but there is an attention to detail in this game that's like really, really hard to replicate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, this game's an ocean that you can't see three feet into, but it's a hundred feet deep. Yeah, for sure. It's hard for other games to live up to that, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing too, is that, you know, uh, every game is different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, not every game can be Kentucky Route Zero. Kentucky Route Zero is better because not all games are like this. Well, you said it, man. It's a once in a decade game, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that as influential as this game has been in a lot of ways, I would actually like to see it be more influential in totally the the way that it incorporates other forms of art, you know? I hope this TV edition sells like hotcakes. Um, oh, yeah. I think I, the hype around it is huge. I can't really imagine it not, you know? And I think, once again, all those little attention to detail and all those little things that they put in the game actually make it really fun to dive into. Like, you really feel like you're diving into it yeah and there's so much to look at and to play with it's just maybe not all in the traditional sense you know speaking of diving into things let's talk about the themes of this game because the game is fucking deep you know without being spoilery i think we can still talk about the themes of this game it's deeply rooted in americana uh it's got you know that rust belt feel um even though you know the economy is booming there are places in america that are decaying you know uh, i feel like a lot of this game was influenced by the 2008 2009 financial crisis because there is a theme of depression in this game not just personal but in economic ways yeah there's the you know the decline right um, yeah, totally. th and that has more to do with the system, quote unquote, than interpersonal relationships. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, everybody's lost sure. in this game. Uh, you know, it's it's a collection of lost souls, but they they look out for each other and they stick with each other, and it's the system that's fucking people over and putting them into this depressed state. You know, this dark night you know the game takes place in one night and you have to persevere through the dark night yeah well and this game i mean in the tradition of magical realism it basically is a sort of miniature epic i think that's another thing that recurs a lot uh yeah throughout well it's an odyssey works. right yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. like I think a lot of the novels I listed earlier, they are somewhat epic in scope in terms of like they cover a lot of ground, but mm. they're always tightly focused. So it'll all be about one tiny place or one family or right. maybe even just like one person's experience. And I think this game does that really well. And it updates it for modern America, not just with the explicit themes about like capitalism and about economics, but a lot of it is just the feeling that everything is falling apart. Yes, totally. And it's kind of nuts that this game was made just all throughout the last decade because yeah. things did sort of slowly and then very quickly fall apart over that whole decade. Yeah, 
And it's kind of like the perfect game to represent that. I think, side note too, I feel like people who are around our age have that feeling maybe more so than anybody else. Totally. I th- so like I'm 32, you're 35. Five. I feel like our specific like sub generation, like people who are like, I don't know, late twenties to mid thirties, like mm-hmm. we're, we're millennials, but we're kind of our own little sub generation of people who were too late to experience how things really used to be and like not early enough to feel like really at home in the world right now yeah and i feel like when i talk to people who are my same age or or in that sort of group that i just described there's this really strong feeling that like things have just really fallen apart and it's a feeling that maybe we have stronger than people who are older or younger than us because we like feel like we miss something kind of sure and i think that if this game captures anything it's like that feeling that Mm -hmm. feeling that you're perpetually locked in like the last cool night or the first shitty day you know yeah well yeah i mean our generation is kind of gripped by this uncertainty right you know we keep hearing about how great the economy is blah 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 but when the rubber hits the road it doesn't mean a fucking thing to us yeah um yeah this game deals with those ideas of like transition and uncertainty you know the main character conway it's his last night on the job and he has no fucking idea what he's gonna do when the sun goes up the next day yeah um shannon marquez is when you meet her she's being evicted you know uh, yeah, farmhouses being foreclosed. What an American story! Totally, and I, I think that America. I mean, it's more of an idea than a place, and it's an yeah. idea that is changeable, really. As we've seen just over the last few years, like how much the idea of America has changed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's such a such an important image to present to people that like. America, quote unquote, can be portrayed as one thing, but really it's just a bunch of fucking poor people who can't even get by. Like, yeah. I'm saying that as a poor person who can't really get by. Yeah. Like, that it's like, yeah, dude, I mean, I fuck. I'm a freelancer. I have been doing this for my entire adult life. I had healthcare for like a year recently and I lost it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I dude, this country is just fucking horrible. There's just like never any hope. But my whole life, I either had that vision of like presented to you as like, oh, this is like a hopeful place, or and you can make it, or yeah, that it's like the opposite, you know, where it's only that way for some like other people who are very different from you. Yeah, I don't know. I think this game nails that, where it's Mm. like this place is a fucking nightmare man the american dream has turned into the uh swedish socialist dream or whatever you know what i mean yeah i I don't like how did they pervert the idea of workers rights and things like that being like a socialist idea like so many blue collar fools voting against their own interests yeah i mean it's it's all bullshit dude i mean well and that's a great thing in this game i think the way that they present that is really interesting because they frequently show people just trying to get by taking these horrible deals for themselves like you have in the notes faustian deals yes huge 
huge theme in this game and it's actually my favorite thing yeah. in this game is the way it's portrayed because I really view the sort of poor or working class people's support of people like Donald Trump and even just right wing ideologies as yeah. a Faustian deal. It really like, is. Yeah. They're taking this deal because some part of them feels validated by it. Some part of them feels like they're going to come out better if they throw somebody else under the bus. Exactly. But it's a deal with the devil. You never win. Yep. Yeah. The this- robot devil takes your hands. That's what Futurama <laughs> taught us. Yeah. I mean, the the whole idea of debt and Faustian deals is deeply intertwined in this game. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody's in the red, you know, evictions, uh, bad deals um selling and buying debt is a theme in this game like passing debt onto someone else um just keeping your head above water is a deep theme in this game yeah totally well i love too that the selling debt is something that's in this game because that became a huge thing in america yeah and like it's now just like a huge market not just debt but information i mean basically nicking people's information off of them in some really sleazy duplicitous way and then finding a way to profit off of it is now probably the biggest market in america and it's like ruining everybody's life so that's what (laughs) kentucky route zero is about well you know there's a couple other things you know this game deals with the idea of inside and outside a lot uh, and those things mix together in a lot of interesting ways a lot of the game takes place in a cave uh, but it feels like outside. And then you'll go inside buildings inside the cave. Um, yeah. Some buildings won't have roofs. Like it'll be an abandoned church. So you're still outside and inside. Circles also play a huge theme in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, the zero as a highway is a circle. Almost like yeah. a spiral. Um, the idea of uh, burial mounds comes up later in the game. There's a lot of circular thinking like something like uh, Waiting for Godot, which is a huge influence on this game. Circular thinking. Great, great movie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the idea of inside and outside and circles and time are heavy themes in this game. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where a lot of the really surreal Lynchian and magical stuff in this game comes from mm-hmm. is like this idea that time and space isn't solid. Yeah. Uh, which is really cool. I mean, once again, to reference magical realism, I think a lot of these works sort of pick something to be that magical element, and then they use that to sort of uh, season the story, get yeah. some extra flavor. Uh, like a good example from something I mentioned earlier, like uh, Kafka on the Shore by Herky Murakami is basically the story of a dude who is having mysterious things happen in his real life. And he starts to realize that it's tied to the fact that when he sleeps, he goes to kind of a dream world that's consistent and real, you know, yeah. like it exists. So I think in this game, the analog to that is that time and space are not linear. Mm-hmm. So the title highway, the Kentucky Route Zero, is like this weird, surreal highway that you it's a circle and you go to different places depending on if you're going for like clockwise or counterclockwise. Right. Yeah. So all the directions you get are like keep going until you see this weird symbol and then turn around. <laughs> yep. And you'll be there. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, really cool because there's another, there's a river that acts in the same way yeah. that they, uh, the echo yeah. that they introduce later in the game. And it's a really cool visual yeah. and it's just like a cool thing to experience. Yeah. So another theme that this game does, not only does it, you know, constantly have the idea of classic adventure games, yeah. but it, but it also plays that as a theme through the game. It's highly referential, especially to the game Colossal Cave Adventure, which is one of the uh, earliest text adventure games. Right. Uh, the developer was an amateur spelunker, and he actually went to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and took extensive notes uh, with his family while uh, adventuring around Mammoth Cave. And so as you play the game, if you're familiar with Mammoth Cave, um, his descriptions are very, very lifelike. Yeah. So um, this game is highly referential to that. Um, There are also tons of characters named after adventure game uh, historical figures like Roberta Williams and things like that. I love that. I mean... I, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I love the influence of classic text adventure games on this game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a cool visual thing that they do with like the menus and dialogue options. It's also just really cool in the game when you do that. It kind of reminds me of how it worked in the Stories Untold, and it was just a really cool way to break up the game and that section in the game too when you're playing the big machine is just cool for other reasons it's got a really nice visual and like yeah you gotta like debug it before you can play it yeah we'll talk about that next time yeah exactly (laughs) well so you know there are two more kind of things i wanted to talk about in this episode which are you know the main characters and uh the setting because the setting is a real life place uh, or, you know, several real-life places. So uh, I think that's important to talk about before we get into the meat and bones of next week's episode. So just to run down some of the main characters, um, the main character in the game, for most of the game, is a man named Conway. He's a delivery truck driver on his last day on the job, and he has to deliver some antiques to five dogwood drive which is a place that doesn't exist on any maps he's kind of a sad character he seems like a real blue collar pragmatic type of dude maybe a fatalist you know he like whatever comes his way is just the way things are another character in the game calls himself an outwards reflecting kind of person which means a person that reflects the world back out largely uncolored you know what i mean so he has a real passive personality I mean, whatever goes, goes, which kind of works for you as since he's the starting main character, you know, you can kind of like feel like you're controlling Conway in a way. He bears a striking resemblance to Conrad from the game Flashback. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but, you know, with the name and his clothes, I couldn't sort of ignore that, especially since Conrad is one of my favorite characters or Flashback is one of my favorite games. So... Yeah, I definitely noticed that as well. And I think it's hard to miss it because of some of the like gameplay similarities yeah, to totally. Flashback. Yeah. I mean, I think like we've talked about cinematic platformers in a past set of episodes. Mm-hmm. And like I think that this, I view these modern games like Detention, Night in the Woods, this game, blah, 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 as like an extension of cinematic platformers. So yeah, if it totally. is a reference, it totally makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And so like with 
almost all the characters in this game, uh, Conway is named after someone. He's named after John Horton Conway, who is a mathematician, uh, who is most famously known for the game of life, which is an early AI experiment. Uh, it's something I've tinkered with. Uh, it's kind of interesting to watch visually. Um, if you just like do a YouTube search for the game of life, it's like a bunch of dots like propagating and dying off. Uh, essentially, you just want to see like how long your little dot civilization can last before they all die. Nice. Highly influential dude in the in the world of mathematics and uh, AI and hacking. I mean, some of the game of life visuals are actually. Um, emblematic like hacker emblems so oh nice yeah uh conway's got a dog with him which can either be male named homer or female named blue or a nameless dog you choose that in one of the earliest scenes in the game yeah uh, the dog is kind of a constant companion you can either choose to uh speak to the dog at almost every scene but yeah. it, it, it ends up being like a, a mirror you know conway will talk to himself you know yeah. Uh, or like the other characters will talk to Blue and just kind of reflect their feelings. Yeah. You talk to the dog in the way that you like actually talk to a dog. Yeah. It's cool. It's also <laughs> kind of like uh, this though. That little bit reminded me of Disco Elysium because like, yeah, you can sort of choose whether or not your character thinks it's weird that they talk to a dog. <laughs> like they keep giving you that option to be like, pretty weird that I'm telling you or something like that. But I never picked it because I talk to my cats all the time. Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the second main character is a woman named Shannon Marquez, uh, named after one of your favorite authors. Yeah, <laughs> Gabriel Garcia Marquez, my guy. Once again, 100 Years of Solitude, man. Big influence on this game. Well, and her address is referential to that book because it's like 100 Solitude Lane, but Solitude's in yeah. Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, she's a TV repair woman. Luckily, she carries around a degaussing coil, which comes, yeah. <laughs> comes in handy later couple but, times yeah yeah um she works in the back of a gas station slash tackle shop which mm. actually exists in real life uh we'll talk about that but yeah uh, on the corner of those two highways a gas station slash tackle shop really exists so um weird yeah times are hard she's in the middle of being evicted uh her cousin went missing years ago and it's revealed that her parents probably died in a mining accident which falls into the themes later. Yeah, she's a really cool character. She's kind of like a nice foil to Conway. Mm -hmm. She still is like pretty salt to the earth like him, but she has a lot more opinions. And yeah. there's multiple conversations where you can either have her or Conway respond, which is something cool the game does. And you can pick Conway if you sort of want the straight answer. You can pick her if you want to put a little uh, put a little spin on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And then uh, there's Ezra who is a kid he's got a brother named julian uh who is a giant bald eagle <laughs> uh ezra lived in uh, a big house with his parents until it was foreclosed and they lived at a bus stop for a while uh, but unfortunately one day when he went exploring and came back his parents were gone so he's lived with uh julian ever since you pick him up and he kind of becomes part of the gang and he becomes a uh, kind of part of this like little family of lost souls that you collect through the game yeah totally a couple more characters uh junebug and johnny you meet them a little less than halfway through the game but they stick with you for the rest they're a synth pop duo and they're both robots <laughs> um 
Yeah, they're okay. It's unclear, but they seem biomechanical. Oh, like, they're totally robots, and they talk about how they were built. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't see. Yeah, that. there's a dialogue option for that. Oh, weird. Um, okay, I missed that. Yeah, Junebug's kind of got a dark, fatalistic look on life, and Johnny is the more passive soul. And uh, they're in a relationship. It's kind of vague what their relationship is. Right. But they're clearly close to each other because they have, like, pet names for each other and everything. Yeah. Uh, Junebug's stage costume is based on Loretta Lynn from The Coal Miner's Daughter. Yeah, and they said ultimately, or initially, sorry, that uh, that character was supposed to be a lot more just like Loretta Lynn overall. Yeah. Um, Like, all the time, like, more of a Southern Belle. And then they changed it to a sort of more, like, modern androgynous character as the game went on, which I think was a good move. Yeah. Because it also makes it really cool when suddenly they're wearing, like, a crazy Loretta Lynn dress out of nowhere during their performance segment. It's like, oh, sick. Yeah, Yeah, she's got this cool, like, asymmetrical haircut with half her head shaved. Yeah. And Johnny just looks more like a nerd guy, you know, doing field recordings and shit. (laughs) They have got a uh, motorcycle with sidecar, which you can name funny things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, once they meet the gang, they basically stick with them for the rest of the game. Yep. Johnny's always, like, daydreaming, distracted, constantly referencing the music he's writing in his head. And he does field recordings. He he uh, talks about the acoustics in rooms. He's that kind of yeah. dude. Like I said, he's a very relatable character to me. Yeah. I do all of those things so you know those are basically the main characters in the game um there are a lot more minor characters that are recurring and really interesting well i I guess we'll talk about them as we go through the plot uh next time for sure but the last thing i did want to talk about for this episode is the setting because it's very interesting to me i think when you're talking about uh, folklore as a theme or genre having real life settings or real life analogs is important it just grounds it in reality even though it's magical realism yeah well and i think that in the magical realist style having real places and real things in the story only strengthens it yeah like and that's something that i think when you go back and read some of the like very old books that i mentioned it doesn't hit you as hard as when you read some of the more modern stuff because things and places and items uh, emerge that you're familiar with so you're mm-hmm. like oh yeah I get that Haruki Murakami is actually really big into that he loves to talk about like brands of things it's like mm-hmm. a weird quirk of his so he'll talk about like a certain pair of pants or a certain type of whiskey or like yeah. sneakers or this car or whatever and it's in this very strange way that sometimes it's like wow he's really going on about this whiskey but then you realize that it's just like realistic detail that grounds the story and makes the very magical parts more powerful so yeah yeah so most of this game is based on uh kentucky from roughly between bowling green and south of louisville basically along the i-65 corridor there are a lot of places in the game that don't exist in real life, but there are analogs. One of the most important places in the game is Mammoth Cave, which is a real place and one of the uh, most ancient places in America. There's evidence of human life in Mammoth Cave from 2000 BCE. There's a lot of paranormal stories from this part of the world. You know, a lot of folklore, a lot of ghost stories. 
but I do want to focus a bit on Mammoth Cave because doing my research on this episode, I found tons of cool stories about Mammoth Cave. Mammoth Cave is one of America's earliest tourist destinations. Even, you know, the 1800s, people were traveling the country to come visit Mammoth Cave. And uh, Cave City, Kentucky is economy is like 100% based on tourism to Mammoth Cave. Hmm. Uh, I've stayed in Cave City, like on tour. Uh, and, you know, I've actually spent a lot of time on this highway. So it's actually cool to me because, you know, we've played gigs in Bowling Green. We've played gigs in Louisville. Yeah, uh, it's pretty cool. And everybody from Louisville is mad right now because they pronounce it Louisville. Uh, but that sounds stupid to me. So I'm going to say Louisville. I'm sorry. <laughs> So sorry. Yeah, if you don't have the accent, it's hard to say anything <laughs> yeah. about Kentucky, really. Yeah, so, you know, there, there are cave paintings and evidence of humans in there from as far back as 2000 BCE. Uh, torches found miles into the cave. Some well-preserved mummies. We don't know what culture produced these mummies. And after 2000 years, the cave dwellers sort of disappeared. And the, the quote-unquote more modern Native Americans didn't really dwell in the caves. The, the cave system was rediscovered in the 1700s by a family uh, bear hunting. And after the War of 1812, it became a tourist destination because the, those mummies were discovered. It's known as one of the most haunted natural wonders in the world. In the 1830s and 1840s, Mammoth Cave was sold. Most of it was sold to a rich doctor. And the cave came with a couple of slaves. These slaves are notable men because they were some of the earliest spelunkers that actually discovered a lot of the cave systems and made maps. They were the original guides to the cave system. The most important one being uh, Stefan Bishop. Interestingly enough, they use that name in Kentucky Route Zero as one of the employees of the Hard Times Distillery. Hmm. So they kind of give homage to Stefan Bishop. Uh, he discovered and documented tons of the cave's passages. He went miles deep into the caves. Uh, brave motherfucker, that's all I got to say. Yeah. Um, so this doctor who bought it, he wanted to turn the cave into a tuberculosis hospital because the climate never changes. He, you know, they thought that would help. He built some huts inside the cave for patients, but uh, two died in the first year and all of them got worse. And then he died from tuberculosis himself the next year. Jeez. Yeah. Hilariously enough, the tours that the tourists went on went through the tuberculosis camp. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you believe That's that shit? horrifying. Yeah. Well, it's crazy, too, because, like, obviously this place has all this history that makes it, like, creepy and probably haunted or whatever. But, yeah. like, uh, I've been to a cave like this in Lebanon. Um, it's called Jaita and it's like a giant underground cavern. It's huge. It's super old and it wasn't discovered until relatively recently. Um, it was just like chilling underground untouched by man and it has a big river running through it. Sounds similar. Yeah. You can take a boat through it, which I have, cool. um, through like a section of it and it's fucking crazy. Cause just like the vibe down there mm. and just the feeling of being there is nuts. Cause like, even if it's not like haunted, like just being underground 
in a river that's in a huge underground cavern like the light in there is super weird you feel like you're on another planet like you just are not on any sort of earth that you're familiar with and you can just feel how old it is Mm. like you're just like intruding especially in that place because nobody really went down there except for like professionals who are you know excavating and setting up logistics uh and to keep exploring but yeah having been to a place like this it's it's crazy and they really captured the sort of otherworldly nature of it in the game like there's a scene where you are taking a boat through it and i was like oh man this is just like jayita it's crazy (laughs) that's cool yeah, there's a uh, a cave near here in the Texas Hill Country called the Cave Without a Name. And uh, it's known for its really cool acoustics. And they'll throw concerts down there. So <laughs> people have to lug all their gear into this cave, but the acoustics are so beautiful that people keep doing it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of known as a, like an art hippie spot to go see like a folk act or whatever. Yeah, nice. So yeah, um... So this old tuberculosis clinic, uh, that part of the cave is supposed to be haunted as fuck. Uh, Stefan Bishop, along with the other slave guides, are buried near the cave entrance and are said to haunt it. Um, there are tons of reports of the ghosts of black families in this cave. Uh, there's a part of the tour where you get to like a big cathedral-type room. It's called the church. Uh, there's a part where the tour guides will turn the flashlights off and just light it with like gas lanterns. And at that point, it, it's widely known that you'll see the ghosts of uh, black families. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, the Echo River, which you ride down in the game, is also real and it runs through Mammoth Cave. They had been doing boat tours on the Echo since the mid 1800s. One more important relevant side story. Uh, which I found absolutely fascinating, which fits into the plot and themes of this game. During the 1920s, Mammoth Cave was split up between many owners. One guy named Floyd Collins owned a section called Crystal Cave, but it was really hard to get to. So he was doing some excavating and making it easier to get to when his leg got trapped. And he was trapped for a day before somebody discovered him. And this became one of America's first, like, kind of sensationalist, morbid media frenzies. What happened is that, like, radio people would show up and interview him. And, like, this dude being stuck became a tourist attraction. Like, they set up, like, hot dogs and hamburger stands and fucking, uh, they're selling souvenirs and shit while this dude was stuck. Um, he lived for a couple weeks. But then another cave-in happened, and he was cut off, and he died from exposure a week later. After a couple years, uh, his body was removed and buried by his parents. But then his parents sold the part of the cave where he died, and the new owner dug his body up, put a glass top on the casket, and put him back in the cave. It became such a like hot tourist attraction, like this dead guy in a casket that a lot of the other landowners that owned other sections of the cave were jealous. So they stole his casket and hid the body. The body was found a couple days later with its leg missing. <laughs> like he came back for his leg? They found him. They put him back in the casket, put him back in the cave. His body was in that cave until like the 1960s. 
Jeez. Yeah, but it's really morbid. As as we talk about the story of this game next week, that's gonna make a lot of sense uh, for what happens to some of the characters. So yeah, for sure. That's kind of my wrap up of the locations of the game. Uh, there's a ton of small locations, but I think. You know, talking about Mammoth Cave is super important when getting the context of Kentucky Route Zero. Yeah, totally. No, I, I think so. And like I said, I think the real world details are important to understanding like some of the less real world aspects of the plot. Yeah, and it's definitely concerned with time and place. You know. So. Yeah. No, I think this stuff's all relevant. Yeah. So I guess uh, next time we're gonna dig into the nitty-gritty of the story talk a lot about the references that we come across because this game is highly referential and uh yeah so if you haven't played the game and it sounds like it's for you play it come back next week and then we'll get our hands dirty we'll see you then